Let's see if this scene sounds familiar. The dad was napping comfortably in his favorite chair and suddenly snapped awake at the sounds of sons happily playing catch in the backyard. But that was abruptly interrupted by a wailing cry. Within seconds, the youngest appeared in the door, face streaked with tears, gingerly holding his arm. He hit me. Just about that time, the older brother rounded the corner, his face red with exasperation and exhaustion, only to interrupt. I did not, you big baby. I just threw the ball and you missed it. Why do you always have to make such a big deal out of everything? Dad, as he turned to face his father, you've got to believe me. I didn't hit him. It was an accident, I promise. Does that sound familiar? If you're a parent, you've seen that scene thousands maybe even millions of times in your life. Fights between siblings are as universal as any human experience can be. Ultimately, that kind of antagonism is rooted in something known as sibling rivalry, the tendency of brothers and sisters to compete for perceived dominance and favor within the family. This rivalry is usually harmless, all but forgotten after a few years, but sometimes those feelings can last for years, maybe even lifetimes, and never fully heal. Today we're going to work through a biblical story that is shaped by some of the worst dynamics of sibling rivalry. And this story simultaneously shows us the worst and best of humanity, as well as the always amazing grace of God. I'm really looking forward to sharing that story. It's about Joseph, and I'm going to share it with you right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Welcome back, loyal God's Word for Life listeners, and welcome for the first time, God's Word for Life listeners. I'm so glad you're here. My name is LJ Harry, and I'll be your host for this God's Word for Life companion podcast. Today, we're going to take a look at a lesson that is dated April 3rd, 2022, entitled Believing Without Understanding. If you have the lesson, or the student guide, rather, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have it, that's okay. We're going to take a look today at Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 and 9. So if you have your student guide, turn there. If not, your Bible, turn there. If you're driving or if you're not able to get to your Bible or your phone, you can just listen and I'll read it. I promise I will read it correctly. Right out of the King James Version, verse 5 of Genesis 37, And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. That was the beginning of the end for our friend Joseph, at least the end of his life there in Canaan. Now we take a look at Genesis, and we take a look at the patriarchs. It's right that we would see them as heroes of faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all mentioned in what we refer to as, as the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But being a hero doesn't mean we're not human. These heroes were faithful, but they were not perfect. Some of them were wonderful leaders and yet terrible fathers. The longer and closer we look at the stories of Abraham and his kids and grandkids, 
the closer we see them, the more we realize they really were not perfect. Their families were plagued by favoritism and jealousy. We see it in the opening verses of Genesis 37. We get some rapid-fire facts about our friend Joe. At 17 years old, he was significantly younger than his brothers. Secondly, Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers. He pretty much tattled on them. We're never given the content. We don't get to read the report card. We just know Joseph was a tattletale, as all little brothers are wont to be, and older brothers don't like that. If Joseph had been the only the annoying little brother, there might not be much of a story, but the significant age gap between Joseph and his older brothers was rooted in the excruciating story of the childbearing rivalry between Rachel and Leah as they vied for Jacob's heart. Joseph just happened to be the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, his beloved Rachel. And Jacob made his fair-haired favorite an expensive, infamous coat of many colors. Probably had long sleeves extended to the ankles. It was the garment of a nobleman, not a shepherd. The coat's continued reappearance throughout the story all the way through Genesis 37. It serves to remind us that the central problem of the story was not Joseph's dreams, but Jacob's unfair favoritism that sparked his brother's hatred and jealousy toward Joseph. Let's pause for a question. Do you have a younger or older brother or sister? If so, were there ever times in your relationship that were marked by sibling rivalry? And has that relationship improved over the years? I must say my sister and I, we had our brouhaha's when we were growing up. I have an older sister, 22 months. In fact, she's going to be I won't tell you how old, but she will be (laughs) one year older in one week from today. So happy birthday, sis, one week early. We fought all the time, and yet now we are good friends because thankfully we grew up, and that's typically the way it should work. To, To this point, Joseph's problems were not of his own doing, but they were really the result of his father's favor. His dad was not a good dad. As a young man, Joseph's motives were at least innocent, even if his actions weren't wise. There's really no condemnation of Joseph's decision to share his dream with his family. It's to be credited, it seems, to the exuberance of youth. So what do you think? Should Joseph have shared his dreams with his family? What do you think his motivations were? We can never know a person's motives, really, but what do you think they might have been? And then if you don't know the end of the story, let me just say this. If Joseph had not shared his dreams, it would have been very easy for Joseph later to say, oh yeah, by the way, I dreamed that this would happen 13 years ago. But he could say, you guys remember around the breakfast table while you were choking down granola flakes, I told you this was going to happen. And that was 13 years ago. God was in this. There are several important features to, to notice about the dreams. First of all, they're different in symbolism, but they were united by a theme of his brothers, his family bowing down. In the first dream, the brothers' sheaves bowed. In the second dream, the stars, sun, and moon bowed. The bowing was a theme of the entire Joseph story. It reached its zenith, its resolution, whenever the brothers fully bowed down before his face in Genesis chapter 50, after their father Jacob had died. Second, Joseph's success later hinged on successfully interpreting dreams. It's worth to note, Joseph didn't seem to grasp the full import of his dreams while his brothers, they clearly understood. They asked Joseph, shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? It does sound more forceful in the King James, doesn't it? Again, Scripture doesn't condemn Joseph's obtuseness. 
but the family's reactions to his words. Finally, it's important to note the dream was doubled. This is the only clue given that these dreams were not just the expressions of Joseph's overexcited imagination or pepperoni pizza at 3 a.m. In this artful use of expense, we don't learn until Genesis 41, when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's pair of dreams, that such a double dream is indicative, this is soon to come to pass, of a surety, and it is of divine action. That dream was doubled to Joseph twice, it was dreamed to Pharaoh twice. It just simply meant God is going to bring this to pass. But the brothers reacted to Joseph's dreams with hatred and even more hatred and hatred on top of hatred. It multiplied in short order. Genesis 37 verses 4 through 5 and verse 8, when his brethren saw that their father loved him more, they hated him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and they hated him yet the more. And his brothers said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? And they hated him yet the more. Three times in three verses, Joseph's brothers hated him. Their murderous jealousy would rather see their little brother die than exceed them in honor. That's just the that's the depth of sibling rivalry and unfair parental favoritism. It began with Abraham's callous casting out when he cast out Ishmael to satisfy Sarah's spite against Hagar. You can read about that in Genesis 21. And then it carried on to the jealous rivalry between the firstborn Esau and the conniving combination of his scheming mother Rebekah and his younger brother Jacob. Finally, that jealousy made its way all the way to Jacob's sons, whose scheming would deceive their wily old deceiver. The deceiver was finally deceived. It's a stark lesson in the ongoing power of family dysfunction. It was dysfunctional. It's even more sobering when we recall these were godly families. These were patriarchs. And yet their families were remarkably dysfunctional. But let me add this little tidbit. God used them. Question numero trace. The brothers acted the way they did against Joseph because of favoritism. But what are some other dysfunctional patterns that could be repeated across family generations? And what can we do to break those destructive cycles? Now, continuing on the story, we can be thankful the story of Joseph. It doesn't look away from the ugliness of this rivalry between Joseph and his brother. That's not even to say rivalry. The Bible doesn't gloss over the father's favoritism as toxic as it was or the brother's toxic outright hatred. The book of Genesis can risk this unflinching honesty about human failure because it's human. And the course of the story is not determined by human action, but by divine action. We're not in control. God is. The God-given dreams you have of what could be are a crucial part of God's gracious act in your life. The dreams are certain because they're dreams for you. His work he will do in his time and in his way through you. Don't be ashamed, don't be discouraged by the dysfunction of your past or even of your present family. Instead, follow your dreams and watch God bring his bright future to pass. But if you can do anything to help stave off and stem that dysfunction at your generation, do it. Do you believe God has given each of us a dream of what he wants for our lives? And what would you say is the most important ways to discover those dreams for your life? As powerful as Joseph's God-given dreams were, they weren't designed to prevent trouble and heartache from ever entering Joseph's life. In fact, they were designed to give him hope to endure the heartache and trouble he was about to go through. Dreams give us endurance to withstand the hurts in life. Let's take a close look at some of those hurts the dreamer 
had to hurt as he waited for his dreams to become reality. The first time, the brothers just made a mockery of his dreams. They made fun of him. They said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. It was bitter sarcasm. It was mop needed for sarcasm spell on aisle three. You could feel it. It was tangible. It was palpable. But in the Hebrew, even more so. It could be more closely translated. Here is the master of dreams. He's 17 years old. They're being sarcastic. That's not complimentary. It implied Joseph's dreams were just fanciful delusions of self-importance. He was the master. Even though he wore that luxurious coat, Joseph would not. Joseph would never and was not their master. Hey, yeah, right. You rule over us, little Joe, in your dreams. So they rejected his dreams and then eventually rejected him. Their mockery made it clear they didn't consider Joseph their brother anymore. You can notice the almost clinical detachment with which they hatched a scheme to kill Joseph. They said, come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, some pit, just somewhere. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. The first option they came up with was murder. That was their first idea. And then a devious plot to cover up their crime so they weren't held responsible. The eldest brother, Reuben, though, he said, guys, let's not jump right to that. How about let's just abandon him? Don't kill him. Shed no blood. Don't cast him into the pit to kill him. But let's cast him into the pit and don't lay a hand on him. The narrator let us know Reuben's plan was to come back later and rescue Joseph. Now, maybe Reuben's motives were pure. Maybe he really did want to save his baby brother. But he despised Joseph just as much as the rest. He did see, however, an opportunity to remove the shame of his actions with his father's concubine, Billah, by saving Jacob's favorite son. Reuben was in the doghouse with his dad. So maybe if he saved his son's life, and maybe if it was found out that he saved his favorite son's life, maybe that would be enough to get him out of the doghouse and back into his dad's good graces. But we don't know why Reuben left after Joseph was thrown in the pit, but he did. But while he was away, his brothers calmly lunched right there beside the well, and a band of desert traders appeared. And Judah got an idea, a diabolical plot, that would ensure Joseph would die, and they would make some cash off of him. He said, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for, come on, guys, he's our brother, he's our flesh, let's not kill him, let's sell him. It's impossible to read this without feeling the shock that borders on horror. The sheer evil of their brother's betrayal of Joseph, it's incomprehensible, it's unconscionable. There's a note in the Expositor's Bible commentary where the writer writes, Little did the brothers suspect that their very plans they were scheming were to lead to the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Joseph had tenacious faith, even in the face of such intimate betrayal. That's an inspiring lesson for us. Joseph didn't let the severity of his trial poison him or make him bitter. He held on to the dream God had given him, even when everybody around him rejected him and his dreams. We should do the same. We should hold on to our God-given dreams. Let the Word of God define us, not the hurt or the betrayal or the abuse or the neglect we've experienced. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, he reminded the scattered and persecuted church of God's dream for them when he wrote of them in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Last question. How do you think Joseph was able to keep his faith during all the ups and downs in Egypt? When he was sold, then he was lied on, then he was imprisoned, then he was forgotten by two years by a guy who he helped to get out of prison, then finally, after all that time, he was remembered and he was promoted. How do you think he maintained his faith through all of that? Okay, let's wrap this up. It's important to realize of all the characters mentioned in the story of the patriarchs, all the way from Genesis 12 to 50, nothing negative was recorded about Joseph. He's the only, quote, perfect character in the entire book, even more so than Abraham. We know Abraham lied about Sarah, his wife, being his sister. Joseph is also perhaps the most traumatized character in the book. And very likely those realities are combined, they're connected. Somehow in his divine grace, God uses trauma and trials of our past to bring some unexpected and seemingly impossible good in our future. Good we will often never recognize until the very end when all the final pieces fall into place. For Joseph, it wasn't until after his dad died in Egypt that Joseph finally and fully recognized the intricacy and the beauty of God's divine plan. We read about it in Genesis 50, verse 20. We turn briefly to Paul's analysis of the reality of sin from the book of Romans. Sin's exceedingness is not enough to strip out grace. For he wrote, where sin abounds, grace did much more abound, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, verses 20 through 21. The first act of the Joseph story calls each of us to look deeply, look honestly at the most painful memories and reaffirm in the face of all those negative feelings our faith in the reality and goodness of God for our lives. Because of his grace, his amazing grace, we are free to own the truth of our imperfect past. It's okay to admit, yeah, we're not perfect. Yeah, we've got some dysfunction, but thank God we have grace. And recognize that the grace of God is able to lift us to heights we've only seen in our dreams. Let's pray right now and let's ask the Lord to help us to bring any healing for any dysfunction in our families. If we can help, that we will. But if there's nothing we can do, that God will bring healing. And then also for God to reveal the dream he has for our lives, whatever it is, and to have us the faith to watch that dream come to pass. Lord Jesus, we love you. All things do indeed work together for good. I do pray you would help us to bring healing. If there's anything we can do, help us to bring healing to the dysfunction in our families. If we ourselves are at fault, if we are showing favoritism, or if we are jealous, or if we are vicariously living our lives through our children, if there's anything we're doing that is causing dysfunction, if we're causing any kind of brokenness in our own home, God, pre prepare us to do what we need to do and heal us of whatever is causing us to act in those ways. If dysfunction is out of our control, I pray you would bring healing to our families, and I ask you, God, stem and stave off this dysfunction right here at our generation. Don't let it affect our children and our grandchildren. And I pray, help us, Lord, to know the dream you have for our lives. Whatever it is, we want to follow. We want to do your will. We want to hear your voice and faithfully follow after you until you have done in us and through us everything you want to do. Let it be. I pray it. 
In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Please be sure to click subscribe. You'll never miss an episode. Click share. Nobody else has to miss an episode. And then visit us at PentecostalPublishing.com. We've got a lot of great resources, Bibles, Bible studies, books, music, CDs, DVDs, maybe even some cassette tapes. Probably not, but possibly. All kinds of great resources to help you grow in your relationship with God. Devotionals, inspirational books, Christian fiction, nonfiction, commentaries, good stuff, good stuff to help you in your discipleship and to help others in theirs. Next week, we continue the Joseph story. And we're going to take a look at a lesson dated April 10th, 2022, entitled, The Lord is With You. He's with us, just like he was with Joseph. And we're going to hear that story next week. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, Make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.